You're listening to Fly Fidelity. And this is Johnny Russo, a.k.a. Carlo from The Godfather. And I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Don't change that dial. First, First I say, what we're going to do. Then you say, I don't know. What do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. The Hollywood godfather Gianni Russo, best known for his role as Carlo Rizzi in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, is with us on this week's show. Actor, author, singer and businessman, we sit down for an intimate conversation to talk about his fascinating life story, working for three decades with Frank Costello, his relationship with Frank Sinatra, 50 years of The Godfather and so much more on this episode. Enjoy the conversation. To talk about Gianno Russo's life means having a dialogue about a bigger picture for the sake of context, of course. You have an amazing story and there's so much to navigate. I want to start with this being your second pandemic and your story starting in quarantine in Bellevue Hospital, New York, 1949. And that's where it started. I mean, I was six and a half years of age on August 16th. My mother took me to a clinic and because uh, my father said, I'll just give him some aspirin. He'll be OK. And she snuck me to a clinic. They did blood work. And the next day they came and took me, <laughs> carried me out of my apartment and took me to uh, a state hospital on 30th and 1st Avenue, which is still there, fortunately. And I, 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 I find myself walking down there a lot. I walk three to four miles every day in my life just because of the pandemic when I didn't wasn't mobile at all for three or four years with the with polio. And as you pointed out, it's my second pandemic. And it's so much different than that one, because obviously I'm much older and basically so aware of these vaccines. The thing that startled me that they got this vaccine within 90 days and I yeah. waited years. <laughs> Crazy. We're talking about the oldest public hospital in New York, aren't we? Mm-hmm. So- yep, it's there. It's over 100 years old. And the good news about it, my book is now, I'm going to give you an exclusive. 
My book is now being wrapped. Ah. One of the greatest rap producers in the world, his name is Arsenic, the, the heat maker. And what we're doing uh, next month, we're going to go back to Bellevue. I cast a kid that looks just like me at seven years old. And we're going to do some footage on this that's going to be so spooky and take you chronologically through 12 episodes of the book, 12 chapters, and make a, an hour video and rap song, 12 cuts. That's such a revolutionary idea because I know this book is already a musical. Oh, it's like insane. And, and you know what's so funny because... Uh, I, I just coined the phrase and, and basically patented it in America, rapology. And I'm going to do three more books. I've been commissioned to do three more books. And if you think the first one was good, wait till you hear the second one. It's insane. Well, your story I'm, is insane. And of course, there's so many parallels we could talk about with hip hop and this, this fascination with mafioso lifestyle. Let's talk about going back for a second. Let's talk about the earliest part of your story. Of course, you living with polio. How does it affect you personally back then? Well, back then, I mean, here I was, I'm, I'm still very religious. I was already an altar boy. I used to go to church with my grandmother every, every day, basically. And uh, then all of a sudden, I get polio. And I had no feeling in my left side of my body. And, you know, when a kid at six, six and a half, and then I'm wheeled into this hospital, my mother's holding my hand until we get to this double door. And above it, I never read a word that big in my life at the age of six and a half said quarantine. And my mother's crying hysterical. I'm crying. I'm crying now talking about it. And I was wheeled away and didn't see anybody for seven, I mean, for five years until I was seven years old. It's a lot. It's, it's amazing. And, you know, it's, I, I, I thank God every day, and I don't want to sound corny, but I watched 2,300 kids perish in that hospital. Not literally, but heard about them from different wards. So I, I am really, really blessed. And I think that motivated me to get up and get out of there. You know, it was, uh, I just wanted to get out, which is ironic because I share my birthday, December 12th, with Frank Sinatra. Uh -huh. And probably one of the most known gangsters in the world, who I used to call Uncle Carlo in the neighborhood, because that's all I really thought it was my uncle. Everybody over 21 in Little Italy, you always showed the respect as calling them uncles. But Carlo Gambino sent through his niece, Dolores Barone, who was my floor nurse. And when I got there, she was a candy striper. And I don't know if you have that in Great Britain. She was a nurse in training and she wore a red and white stripe uniform so you could differentiate them from the real nurses. And by the time I got out of there, she was a, a registered nurse. But she gave me on my eve of my birthday, December 11th, this little transistor radio. And I turned it on early in the morning on my birthday. 
and very depressed knowing because she let me know nobody can come. It's not that they don't love you anymore, but they can't come. It's quarantine, highly contagious law. And I put on the radio and they're celebrating Frank Sinatra's birthday. And they, I learned about him from humble beginnings in Hoboken. His mother was a barmaid. His father worked in Todd's shipyard. And they were lower middle class Americans. And now he's doing seven, eight shows a day at the Paramount Theater on Broadway. And I said, well, if he could do it, I'm going to do it. And he inspired me. And fortunately, I could say, eventually I met him. He baptized my son, Luciano. And until he perished, you know, in, 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 at 74 years of age, I, I, was, I used to see him annually, I mean, annually, as much as I could. We spent a lot of Sunday dinners together at, at Mateo's, his favorite place in California. And a good friend of his, uh, Matty Mateo, opened the restaurant. But so, I mean, even now as I sit here, and that's the reason I walk so much. Because my doctors told me, you have to get up and exercise. And it's a regimen of my life. That's what I do. I do that every day. I never not walk. And if it's raining or snowing, I'll go into Bloomingdale's, which is two blocks from my house. And I walk the nine floors twice up and down. And I get my miles in. A lot of strengthening exercises, of course, back then. What kind of exercises were you doing to help you learn more normal movement patterns? Well, it's, it's funny you should say that because I did no exercise. The left side of my body had no strength, and it was due to the elasticity muscles. So this was the, the earliest form of what we know today as dynamic tension. They gave me bicycle tubes from ordinary bikes. Huh. And they hooked it on my crib top, and I would just hold it out as long as I can. And the longer tubes were I would, my foot like a, uh, like a stirrup, and I'd, they'd stretch out my leg, and I would just hold it in position, my arm, my leg, until I started building up muscle strength, and then I could exercise, which took about two years. So you mentioned this physical therapy, which, you know, takes, as you just said, two years. What was your mental therapy? You mentioned, of course, Frank Sinatra being somebody you enjoyed in the hospital. How are you navigating and staying sane during this five, six years at Bellevue? Who and, and what was your strength back then? My strength was, again, Dolores Barone. They told her, you know, he's a good friend of ours, take care of him in the neighborhood. She'd come every day give me the extra jello. And the biggest thing before she left almost every day, she, she worked six days a week, like most of the medical teams were just working constantly. Right. And uh, she'd give me a hug. And believe me, I needed that hug. And my, my faith in God, I was praying most of the time. And uh, here I am talking about it, you know, 69 years later. So that's exactly. a blessing in itself. Absolutely. And we're talking about five years in quarantine versus, you know, the duration we've been spending in quarantine ourselves across the world. For an adult, that would be enough to drive anybody crazy. But I can't begin to imagine what that duration feels like for a kid. Where did times where you felt like giving up? Well, I, I really, I, 
I, I was starting to get very depressed as my birthday. I was, that was only six months. I got there in August. As my birthday was approaching, I was getting depressed because I didn't see anybody. And all, I was in a 20-bed ward. And all those kids, I mean, a lot of them gave up early. And uh, unfortunately, some of them stopped eating. They had no will to live. So when they would pass... If you had the pleasure of going to therapy or leaving the ward, when you came back, those beds were scrubbed down and the mattresses were, you know, flipped in half. And, you know, Robbie Martucci went to heaven today. So you're talking about yeah. a salvation and, and a belief that, thank God, I am who I am. But, you know, most of the world, fortunately, uh, millions of people have read my book and heard the story. That's what kept me going. I had to get out of there. My my will to survive is, is the will I still have now. I'm, I'm running seven com companies at my age. Even my kids say, what, what, what are you doing? I'm doing what I enjoy and I'm healthy enough, so why wouldn't I do it? I don't want to just sit around on a couch or watch television. I've never done that and I won't do it. Yeah. We're talking about reinvention and it's something you've done several times over in your life and in your career. Talk about using your available strength as a result of exercising and means of defending your life back then from this subhuman member of staff that you had already been warned about. What's the story behind that? Well, when I, as I got a little older and I was like 10 or 11 years old, Dolores Barone warned me of this, of these, uh, he was a physical therapist. And it's not like we were educated as our kids are today with the tablets and all of that. Right. I wouldn't know what pedophile meant. And uh, she didn't even use the word. She just said, you know, he, he may want to take advantage of you because, and she was being very gentle with me and trying to let me understand if he should approach you get away from him or just call out to somebody. Yeah. So I don't know what happened because once I had some strength, they stopped giving me a bedpan. They encouraged you to get out of bed. So I would slither out of because my right side had all my strength. Fortunately, I wasn't totally without strength. My right side was like so strong in two years because that's what I was relying on, dragging me around and crawling around. And once I got to the, uh, the, the rails along the wall, I'd pull myself up with my right side and drag myself to the bathroom. And one day, this porter's broom, these little brooms they use just to sweep up small crumbs and stuff like that. They use them in the theaters too, for the people who are not aware of it. And I just it was blocking my way, it was leaning against the wall. And I put my right hand, I grabbed it, put it under my right shoulder and went into the bathroom and I couldn't stand up at a urinal. So I used to sit on the toilet all the time to go to the bathroom. And I was in no hurry to go back to the ward because it was the only isolation I had. And the privacy I had was a canvas drape pulled across on one side. And I snapped the bristles off the broom so I had like maybe a three or four foot stick, which was the, the handle of the broom. Right. And I would sit there every day and don't ask me who guided me to do this and why I did it. 
I would just file it in the grout of the floor tile. And I sharpened it to like a pencil's point. And every day I would put it, the radiator was hung on the walls. So I hung it horizontally with the bracket so you couldn't see it because I didn't want nobody to find it. And I'd always go to the same stall. Well, after years went by, one night this gentleman came and uh, I could hear the footsteps in the bathroom because he didn't have slippers on and they were like street shoes and I could hear him coming closer to me. So at my right hand, I grabbed the curtain and sure enough, when I looked below the curtain, I saw someone facing the curtain and he asked me if I'm okay. I said, yeah, I'm great. And he's trying to pull the curtain. I said, I'll be right out. Give me a few minutes, I'll be right out. And with his strength, he just pulled the curtain. He stepped inside and pulled the curtain closed. But what he didn't recognize that I had the broomstick laying at my side, because as soon as I got there, I would take it and lay it there. And I could just reach it without much movement. And he unbuttons his pants and he starts to show me his uh, manlyhood or whatever we want to call it. And, uh, but he didn't notice that I had the broom handle in my right hand and he's trying to force his penis into my mouth. So all that activity was going on above his, his, you know, his waist. He was looking at my face and not my arms, trying to, you know, encourage me and convince me it was a Tootsie Roll and candy or whatever he was saying. And with my left arm, I just had enough strength to lay the broom on it. Now understand, I'm sitting down on a toilet. And my right hand and shoulders from dragging me was so strong, I just drove it towards him. And luckily it was under his ribcage and it went right into his heart, almost out of his wow. back. And he's running around screaming, fortunately, which everybody ran in. And the last thing I know, I see Dolores with a blanket and she throws it over me and takes me out, not for me to see what went on. And in an hour or two, they put me on another gurney and they take me upstairs. And I'm, I'm totally confused now. Now they put me in a psych tank. And I was there for 72 hours under observation. 72 hours. 72 hours. This, I mean, is so animalistic and unhumane. Totally nude, sitting like in a funnel-type floor. Men, women, and everybody. And every once in a while, they'd come by and wash everything down with warm water because people had no control of their their bowels or throwing up or anything else. And they're just analyzing me to see if I was nuts. And now as I reflect on it, it's shocking I didn't go nuts during those <laughs> 72 hours. Absolutely. Absolutely. And laugh about it, you know. I mean, you mentioned yourself already being religious at this moment in time, being a victim. Did, did that happen to change your perception and faith in God in any way with what happened? Are you reevaluating your faith in God at this point? Can you believe this has Constantly. happened? Constantly I was doing it. 
And every time something like this would happen, I would I would break down and cry and, and basically be talking to God. The ironic thing about that, though, I had a little statue, a plastic statue. Thank God it was made out of plastic because they were able to sterilize it. And Dolores Barone would always make sure I had it. And St. Anthony was always in my hand. Just clutched it. It was small enough, three or four inches high. There were little statues they used to put in car windshield on the dashboard. And I had it. It was my survival because I felt, you know, and I, well, here I am talking about it. So it worked. I mean, I don't know if I'm really sane, but <laughs> I'm, I have a controllable insanity, let's say that. <laughs> well, there must be some kind of trauma you're dealing with today. I mean, do you still struggle and suffer from that PTSD from that time? How do you manage that? I, you know, I don't. I, I, I'm, I'm very, as I say, I, I, I pray a lot. Right. It was a challenge. But look at my rewards. Look what I've done. Mm. I mean... The first 12 years of my, well, the first six years were great. A normal giant kid surrounded by family and, uh, uh, you know, totally oblivious to life other than the people that were around me. But after I was 12 years old and the people that I met and Mm. one gentleman early on, Frank Costello, I didn't know the power he had. But again, I think, you know, that, that for some reason, that was my mission. God had this view. I mean, you know, your, your audience don't know who I am, but I've been shot, stabbed, kidnapped, traveled the world, amassed millions and millions of dollars. And I'm blessed. I think I'm totally blessed, including the polio. Yeah. I have no grief over it. And that's how I overcame it. I mean, so I had some negativity. So I had some pain. We all have pain sometime in our life. And our personal pain is the, is the hurt that we suffer at that time. And it's how you handle it. And I think learning that lesson early on is who I am now. I mean, I, I let you in on a secret when we introduced the show. Somebody said to me just the other night, I'm going to the studio. I'm actually in a recording studio, four hours on Monday, four hours on Thursday creating this rap song and it's never there's no category for it so we're open for a grammy we're open for the golden globes we're open for an oscar because no one has taken an autobiography and wrapped it so here we are again at 80 years old i'm creating something and, and god gave me the power to create this at 80 who's doing what i'm doing at nobody, 80 nobody <laughs> You've you've been blessed to turn these silver linings into huge triumphs and blessings over your life. And we're going to be talking about that, of course, and navigating through these new projects you're working on today, including this rap album. How do you get out, backing up, how do you get out and where do you go, knowing that you haven't seen any family for presumably the entire quarantine? Where do you go? Well, Dolores... Well, after I did that 72 hours, miraculously, they said you could leave. They just wanted to get me out of there because it was a state hospital. I mean, it's not like today, no matter what goes on, it'll be on the news in an hour. So it was, a, fortunately, it was an antiquated time. And so she wheeled me out 
and even the staff at the hospital thought my parents were picking me up because they couldn't come in and get me because there's a quarantine. So it worked to my advantage again. And she, I remember she gave me a dollar. She hailed a cab and they took me back to the neighborhood. Now, the only place I could go was my neighborhood, but I didn't want to go home. I was really annoyed by this time. You know, seven years have passed. Yeah. You know, I, I still I, I think about that not as much as I used to now that my parents have passed. But, you know, I think, you know, I have 11 kids. I have, you know, nine sons and two daughters. I don't know if they were in trouble that I couldn't get to them. Well, why, why I wouldn't get to them. And I really, I'm not that, you know, hands-on because I have 10 mothers to my kids. But I know, I mean, if they were in trouble, I'd get there and help them somehow or take them away. You know, you hear of people taking their kids even to avoid the draft to Canada or to overseas just so they don't go to war. Well, I was at a, a, a terrible war at a young age. But again, I can't hold it against them. And I never did, but I never had the same feelings as I was when I was six years old towards them again. And uh, I went to McNaughty's Bakery. It was a baker my grandfather knew. And I knew, I used to walk there all the time with my grandfather. And I went to Funzie McNaughty. And it was so funny because it was such an, they had such an aura about me because it spread through the neighborhood that this 12-year-old kid just killed an orderly. <laughs> and my uncle Angelo in Sicily was known for that. They hung him in 1947. It was one of the major, you know, La Cosa Nostra. And uh, everybody in the neighborhood, you know, he was like a folk legend to all the Sicilians. <laughs> and they're saying the apple didn't fall far from the tree. I didn't even know what they were talking about because I didn't know what he did. But uh, so McNaughty's Bakery, again, why did, I, why did I go to a bakery? Why didn't I go to Patty's Dress Shop? Who were all people I knew. I got to the bakery. He automatically gave me a job. I, I used to stay there. I used to sleep on the 50-pound bags of flour. And for our audience who are medically inclined, the greatest thing I could have done at that time because of my paralysis and all that, was be in dry heat. Right. And these were coal ovens with these big, you know, bakery ovens. And the flour took all the humidity out of the air. So again, somebody, if you don't believe in God, you believe in Buddhism, whatever you believe in. Right. Whoever was guiding me every step of my life, even right up until now, the things that have happened for me are, are, are miraculous. They Somebody's really been are. watching. Somebody's been watching. If somebody was watching you back then, what can you tell me about the significance of your uncle, Angelo Russo, back then? Well, I, I didn't know that much about him. Who educated me soon after my experience at the bakery, I took a walk with my grandfather and I really, I used to do that as a kid, so I never even thought about why he was doing it now. He was exercising me, like you walk a horse or a dog, because he knew of my paralysis. 
So he'd take me for walks every day. Once the bread got out, we had to get the bread out by five o'clock in the morning to get to all the bakeries and restaurants. And then I'd go to get some sleep for a couple hours on the flower bags. And he'd come and collect me. We'd go take a walk hand in hand from Mulberry Street to Delancey Street. You know, it's about five, six city blocks. And I remember a guy called Leo Rabinowitz. He was the first Jewish person I ever met. And the people who read my book and know me, I've been controlled and befriended by the most famous Jews in the world since then. I even went and lived in a kibbutz. I don't want to get ahead of my story, though. But Leo Rabinowitz just received ballpoint pens. They came out with pens that held their own ink. You didn't need an inkwell and a bottle of ink to fill your pen. And he was so anxious about telling my grandfather. And my grandfather only went there to buy pencils and pads because he had a club. I go every Italian, they had clubs on every block. And they'd play zig and that, and they kept score with it. And he's trying to sell my grandfather these pens. I'm like, Reverend, I just want the pencil. I don't need pens. But I was so impressed with his enthusiasm. The next day, I walked down there by myself. I said, Mr. Rabinowitz, I said, the story you told my grandfather about the pens, you know, I probably could help you. Now, understand, he's talking to a 12-year-old cripple. The whole left side of my body is still disformed. You know, my left arm and all that was still a lot smaller than my right side of my body. Right. And I didn't have full use of it. But mixing the 50-pound bags of dough by hand and not using the mixer, I was building my body up, which now is called dynamic tension. But because anybody who ever made dough, it's pushing and pulling in the resistance of the dough itself. And then we wait for it to raise. And then we'd cut them into quarter pound loaves and make bread. So I was, again, manipulating and, and using muscles that I wouldn't normally be using with both hands. Right. And uh, thank God, you know, here I am. So now you're starting to rebuild your life at 12. You're 12 years old at this point, I'm imagining. Are you 12? Yes. You're hustling, you're selling pens, you're inventing your future. What's the story behind you becoming an associate of Frank Costello and essentially working for him for, I believe, it would have been the next 30 years? Is that correct? Yes, definitely. It was exactly. What happened was I exhausted... I, I went to, I went to Marine Midland Bank, which was like the biggest bank, and Mr. Pinto, again part of the Italian families down there was most prestigious. He was the president of the bank. So I went into him with his pens. And he they all knew me. They all, you know, I was like the uh the mascot of the town, how I survived this and and then the killing, and you know, they had the, all these illusions about me. <laughs> So I said, I want to know when these pay, these were big offices, you know, duly concerned on Wall Street, all these places get paid because they were getting paid in cash. Hmm. That time, everybody got an envelope. You didn't get a check because people didn't even have bank accounts. They, they lived on that money week to week. So he gave me the schedule with the addresses of when they got the money. And I would show up with my ballpoint pens and my gimp arm in my cigar box and sell pens. Well, it got to be, 
I didn't even walk up to anybody's desk. They would just open the drawer and show me how many pens they had already. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured I'd have to go uptown. And I remember once I got the, the uh, corner bed in Bellevue, I had to wait for somebody to pass on to get the, the window. I wanted to be near the window because all I saw was the, you know, the light from the window from down the aisle. So I finally got the corner bed and I looked out the window and I saw the Empire State Building, which at that time was the tallest building in New York. And I come from Mulberry Street, there's nothing down there over six stories. That's all I knew about. So I asked Dolores, I said, what's that building? She said, it's the Empire State Building. I said, what street is that on? She said, 34th Street. And I said to myself, someday I'm gonna go uptown. So now I'm saying to myself, maybe it's time for me to go uptown. And I got on the N train, which still runs, the R, the N, and the W are still running in New York, which is such, you know, meaningful to me. I took the train from Canal Street to 59th Street, 59th and 5th Avenue where I got off, right at the corner of Central Park. I look up and there's the Sherry Netherlands Hotel. And I walked over there, there was an awning, and everybody was nice. I thought everybody was going to church. Everybody was dressed. In our neighborhood, they only got dressed on Sunday to go to church. <laughs> so I opened my, my, my box of ballpoint pens. Most people didn't even see them, but they were so nice to me. And you know, they give me a dollar or 50 cents. I bought the pen for 10 cents. And I made the deal with Leo Rabinowitz. I said, give me, give, I give nothing to no one. I said, let me rephrase that. Lend me 50 pens. I'll come back the next day. If I sold 20, I pay you for them. He said, I'll do that one day just because I know your grandfather. And I said, my grandfather told me, look a man in the eye, give him your word and shake his hand. And I did. And that's been my bond since then. And that guy put me in my first business. Incredible. And it's because of your uncle that Costello comes to America and you stand with Costello until 73, of course. Take me through those formative years working with Costello. What, what was it you did together? Well, the, the funniest thing is Costello became one of those people. Every day he would come and take, never took a pen. Give me $2, $3. If he had a lucky day, give me a $10 bill. It's like a $100 bill. But he always touched my left shoulder like a hug, but always made sure his, his you know, uh, left arm touched my left shoulder, like hugging me from behind. And never took a pen. And this went on for months. One day, I'm leaving Ferrara's pastry shop, which is still there. The old man Gambino used to go to have coffee. So I'd leave church. I'd go say hello to him just out of respect. I didn't know who he was. But he, I know he sent me to transistor radio. And, you know, he's like my uncle. And as I was leaving there, there's a novelty store that is still there also over 100 years. And they sell Catholic and all different kind of religious and symbolic things. And Nikki says to me, come here, I want to show you something. You're from Sicily, right? I says, yeah, I'm half Sicilian, half Nabaladan. He says, look at this Lagorn. I just got him from Sicily. What was strange about it, and for the audience that's listening, the Lagorn is like that pepper-shaped thing that the Italians wear around their neck for the evil eye. You know, they, they think it keeps the evil spirit away. Okay. 
But this one had a hunchback man on it. And the pepper would be where his legs should be. So I said, why is the hunchback on there? He said, well, the Sicilians like touching a cripple for luck. Well, the blood drained from my head. Because uh, I'm saying, I thought this guy liked me. He's touching me like I'm a freak. So on the way to the train stop, there was a lady peddling rabbit's feet for luck. It was a big thing in America. I don't know if it's the same thing over there. Little rabbit's feet, you know, maybe two inches long. You put them on a keychain. So I picked out a pink one because they come in all different colors. I put it in my pocket. And sure enough, I get to Sherry Netherlands. Here comes Mr. Costello, which I didn't know who he was. And this guy that was with every day, I found out later is his bodyguard. So he gives me like a $5 bill and he goes to touch me and I move. He says, what are you doing? He goes to touch me again, I move. He says, what are you doing? I said, no, it's what you're doing. I thought you liked me. What am I, I'm some kind of freak for luck. I got you something for luck. And my, now I'm 12 years old. <laughs> this guy's got to, you know, get how big this guy is. And I give him this pink rabbit's foot. And he looked at me. I, now I found out the guy's name. Right. He said, Black, imagine this kid's giving me this. He said, you know who I am? I said, no, I don't know who you are, and I don't care who you are. Don't touch me again. So he said, Blackie, take that kid's. Oh, no, he said to me, who, what's your name? I said, Johnny Russo. He's Johnny Russo. He said, who's Angelo Russo to you? I said, Angelo Russo was my cousin. He said, oh, yeah, when did you see him last? I said, I never saw him. He said, why is that? I said, well, if you know him, you should know why. He said, I'm asking you. Now he's getting a little tough. Tell me why you never saw him. I said, well, the story is that they killed him in 1947. They hung him when they were trying to abolish the black hand in Sicily. So he says to Blackie, get that uh, cigar box from him. I said, he ain't taking my cigar box. Frank Costello took out a roll of money. I never saw that much money in my life at that age. And he peeled off three $100 bills. He's now I'm buying the pens, okay? And he gave me the 300, I gave the box. And he says to me, you know where the Waldorf story is? I said, yeah, I go there a lot, because I used to walk down there, you know, it's nice to walk through the lobby and stay warm. He says, you know where the clock is? I said, yeah, it's famous. He said, be there tomorrow, 11 o'clock, and don't be late. I was there 10 o'clock, I wanted to make sure I don't miss this guy. He gave me 300, I can't believe it. <laughs> And here comes Blackie. He's Mr. C wants to see you. And he takes me, which I saw all the time, opposite the clock, was, you know, uh, cafe tables and all that. I never would walk in there. That's, you know, I was a kid begging on the streets. So. And he held court there every day. If he was in New York from 11 to maybe 1 o'clock before he left to go to lunch and meet other people, he'd be there and people knew to come and meet him there. So I go sit next to him, and he dismisses everybody. He says, I want to tell you something. The reason you're here, and you'll never be in trouble, you'll never work again for anybody other than me. Mm. I said, well, what, what do you want me to do? He said, I just want you to be a messenger for me, take envelopes. There's nothing that you have to worry about. Your uncle is responsible 
for so many of us being here in America. I said, what do you mean? He's well, when my parents wanted to come here, he arranged for them to come here, arranged for them to have an apartment here, as he did for the Vito Genovese, as he did for Carlo Gambino. Yeah. And, and I found out later, Carlo came in when he was 17. He was already a made man in Sicily at 17. Wow. And they came here to get rid of the Moderano group that was shaking down the Italian immigrants. And that's how they created the five families. And I was, I knew of the five families, not again, thinking they were families, not gangster families, but family families. And then fortunately for me, when they just created the syndicate, when the Jews, Myolansky, all of them came together and Costello stepped into that, that's who I'm working for now. And I couldn't believe it. And I handed this guy a pink rabbit's foot. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting is that during this time, you, you're never actually a part of the mob. Was it ever in your headspace to become a mobster yourself? Were you thinking about that? You know, as early on, because I was allowed after church on Sunday, I used to stop at the clubhouse now, the Ravenite, the famous Ravenite. And I didn't know, I found out later, you had to be a made man to be in the Ravenite before 12 o'clock noon. Because they did a lot of business, different people, associates would come and do Monday, uh, Sunday morning, you meet them. Carlo Gambino and, and O'Neill De La Croco and all the guys are running everything. Wow. And anybody who had their crews after that would bring their tidings to them <laughs> after 12. Like even John Gotti. I met John Gotti when I was 17. He was a hijacker in Brooklyn. And they used to bring respect money, envelopes. And I was allowed in. And one day, John Gotti, that's how early his hatred for me started. He says to O'Neill, which who was his rabbi there, that's the only reason we're allowed in. He says, why is this kid in here before all of us? He says, what'd you say? What kid? That kid, yeah, and he points to me. He, he smacked him a shot. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I thought he would knock him out. O'Neill De La Croque was a, a top man. He was the underboss to the Genovese family. You never questioned me in my life about anything, number one. And you talk about that kid to me, I see the way you look at him. He said, if that kid gets a splinter, a splinter, I'm gonna come looking for you and stick a telephone pole up your rectum. And I cleaned that up so I could say it on the radio. <laughs> They'd have their turlet water on. The wise guys were collecting the moolah shmoolah. And then you had your couple of jeans. Big Polly was just black. Hello, and welcome to Translating Wise Guy. Let's get started. Meantime, I'd see these wise guys come in from the Bonanno crime family. Bulls. Wise guy. Noun. Member of a crime syndicate specializing in robberies, racketeering, and, you know, killing guys. Bulls. A dominant group of wise guys who'll scare the living shit out of you. Families were very structured. It started at the top with a boss. 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 The head of a crime family usually wears a fedora. To kill a boss, 
You needed the permission of the commission. The commission. The commission. The commission. The Mafia's board of executives. It's when all the fedora wearers from all five families get together and have, you know, pasta. And then you had your capo regimes. Capo regime. Also known as capos or captains. Either way, that's the head of a street crew. Go break this guy's balls. Break this guy's balls. You know what this means, because your ex-wife has threatened to do it. He would be schwitzing. Schwitzing, you know, like to sweat. Come on, you guys don't know schwitz? They bend your leg and stuff it in your pocket. Bend your leg and stuff it in your pocket. I don't know exactly what that means, but I gotta tell you, it's not good. Pinched. Arrested by police. Not good. We don't like this word. Junk. Street narcotics, usually heroin. The cops didn't like it, but we said tough noogies. Tough noogies, it means too bad. Tough noogies. I got these five mamalukes around me. Mamaluke, Italian slang for dimwit, idiot, or generally low IQ individual. You know, like your brother-in-law. All of a sudden, every gangster that couldn't count the 10 started trying to understand what Rico meant. Rico, Rico, Rico. Rico, the racketeer influenced and corrupt organizations act. A law that allows leaders of a mob syndicate to be charged for ordering a crime. Leaders like the commission, remember? The fedoras? They had the open neck, you know, they had to have the hair. Ooh. Then they'd have their turlet water on, you know, like that old spice of high karate. Okay, so open neck, a type of shirt that does not button all the way up. It looks good. Toilet water, a cheap cologne worn by a mama Luke. Old spice, high karate. These are types of toilet water. I remember one of my colleagues running down the hall saying, Big Polly was just whacked. Whacked. Murdered by the mob. Pretty simple. The wise guys were collecting the moolah shmula. Moolah shmula. Money, cash, bread, paper, the ching ching, that good green. You know what I'm saying? These fucking guys got more to hide than what the club has to hide. The club. What was that? The club. That, Mr. Law Enforcement, refers to eight contractors who fixed bids on construction projects allowing the mafia to run the industry, control the city, and make tons and tons of moolah shmoolah. Fear City, a nickname for New York in the 70s, and it's a new docu-series on Netflix. We done yet? I'm schwitzing over here. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions in terms of those earliest foundations of the mafia developing, which I know, like you say, you have a first-hand experience in seeing mutate? What are the biggest misconceptions in terms of those foundations? Well, I, I think, you know, early on, they had to protect themselves. And by, let me give you a great example that Costello showed me. And he kept it in his pocket. That m morning I met with him, he took out the ad for wanting laborers to build the dam, I mean the reservoir, in Central Park. And they had the Irish list, and by, by your heritage. And below the blacks, and there were very few Hispanics then, they had the guineas. They actually put guineas in there because we were hard laborers and they got the least amount of money. And that's what he said. We had to organize. And even the Moderanos, as I said earlier, they were shaking down Italian merchants from Italy mm. for protection. They were supposed to protect them just not to shake them down. And that's how they started this thing. And it was for a good reason. And that's why early on, even when drugs were so lucrative, the early major guys did not want to get into drugs. They knew how it could damage the health of people. 
And, you know, the big thing, that, you know, with prohibition, they were, they, as they said, even Costello, who was partners with Joe Kennedy at the time during prohibition, he amassed over $30 million in the 30s. $30 million. That's like a billion dollars today. Crazy. And I mean, that's the man who's my mentor. <laughs> and it goes back, of course, to your uncle, Angelo Russo. I mean, oh, how yeah. do you think, you know, being Angelo Russo's nephew prepared you for life out of Bellevue? Well, you know, it, it, I, I knew there was a respect. Well, I'll tell you, uh, one night, or one day, actually, it was late afternoon. I go to the Copa because that was like my main stop. Uh, number five, 60th Street, between Fifth Avenue and Madison. And where my beginnings were was right around the corner, the Sherry Netherlands. Where I'm sitting right now, broadcasting with you, I'm on 61st Street in Frank Costello's, one of his apartments. My apartment here, my dining room sits 16. I have an eight-stool bar with a disco lighting sound system five bedrooms, 10-foot ceilings, and he gave it to me. <laughs> it looked beautiful, by the way. Seeing it on camera, it really looks nice. Oh, that's right. You saw part of it, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. But that's what I'm saying. So preparing me, then I used to go to the Copa, like I said, and I get there this one day, and there's lines outside already. And it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And I walked downstairs, and I'm hearing my mentor, Frank Sinatra, doing a sound check because he was going to open that night. And I walk into the room and he looks at Jules Bodell, the manager, like to say, who's this kid? And Julie Bodell, then I was like 13, 14 years of age, said, oh, no, no that's Costello's boy. And Frank, like, just, you know, bowed his head to me. So I sat down. And I listened to some of Sinatra's tunes. So once he had a break, he lights a cigarette. I run right over. And that's when everybody smoked. There was cigarettes and, uh, you know, matches on every table. Not like now. <laughs> I went over and I lit a cigarette. And he said, he's, what's your name? I said, the kid. He's the kid. Who gave you that name? I said, Mr. C. He said, I guess I'm not going to ask you any more questions. <laughs> nobody knew my, you know, until the Godfather, nobody really knew my name unless you knew me well. But he, I traveled all over the world as the kid. And everybody knew, got to know me. I'm talking about world. I mean, I was in Sicily. I was all over the world by the name the kid. And, then, you know, and they used to give me, you could put Mary Poppins on an airline ticket before 9-11. Now you have to show all kinds of proof. Yeah. But with that said, I said, I got to tell you, Mr. Sinatra, you saved my life. He said, oh, yeah, how'd I do that? I said, well, 1949, I start telling him the story. And he's looking at me like I got two heads. I said, and Carlo Gambino, I said, Mr. Gambino. He said, uh, Mr. Gambino, meaning Carlo Gambino. I said, Mr. Gambino sent me a transistor radio. He's kid, I don't know who the hell you are, but... <laughs> I got a lot of respect for you. <laughs> I said, well, I have a lot of respect for you because I was listening to you as every awakening hour. I know all your songs. I know William B. Williams. I know everything you were doing. And you gave me the strength 
of being a humble Italian American from Hoboken, your mother being a barmaid. That's why I left. And we stayed friends until he died. He baptized my son Luciano. I, and I'm the only person that can make this next statement. You're not going to believe this. Frank Sinatra was my only singing teacher. Marlon Brando was my only acting teacher. And I lost my virginity, Marilyn Monroe, at 16. <laughs> Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come on and fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru In Lama what about traveling to Vegas in 59? How does that come about? What's the story behind you traveling to Vegas in 59? And of course, working with Frank Sinatra. Well, at the, after the Appalachian Crime Commission and that whole fiasco, a lot of the, the main bosses that I went to meet before I started traveling for them, Costello said to me, you know, I, you, I'm going to take you out of New York for a while. You got to do some business for us. I said, whatever you want. And I'll tell you how smart this man is. The first stop was Chicago. He's I got, here's an envelope. You're on a plane tomorrow morning. And when you get off, somebody will pick you up at the airport. The person that picked me up was Frank Ballesteri, only to find out later on he was the boss of Milwaukee at the time for the mob. They take me to the Palmer House Hotel. Now understand, I'm, I'm a teenager. He sent me up with accounts at Layton's, which was the clothing store to buy at before Brioni and I started wearing Brioni forever. So I show up and here's this kid, you know, they, they don't know who I am, but they know who sent me. They take me to a booth and I meet a gentleman who stayed my friend till he died. In fact, I'm in his book. They wrote a book about him called Super Mob. His name is Sidney Korshak. They called him Mr. Fix-It. So I get there, and he was not shocked to see me. He obviously knew the kid was coming, and they probably told him who, who I was. I don't expect to see anybody but this kid, because I fit in everywhere. They were very smart how they had me moving around. Who's going to stop me? You know, a nice guy dressed well. I wouldn't, didn't look like a hood. So he said, you have an envelope for me? I said, yeah. I give him the envelope. He takes it out. He reads it. He gets me, gives me a pen. He says, sign here. And he took $10,000. I knew those rappers well. I've seen them so many times with Costello. He took it out, he put it in his pocket. He gave me a piece of the letter, and he kept the other piece. Right. He said, you know what we just did? I said, no. You just retained me as your attorney. And later on, I found out why. Because now my conversation with him is client privilege. Right. That's how long Costello was protecting me. That's insane. And I used to deal with Court Shack all the time. I used to meet him. Well, you read his book. I mean, how many chapters? But the bottom line was what I was doing was meeting every mob boss 
every labor union boss because they wanted to back Senator John F. Kennedy for presidency. And the world didn't know Joe Kennedy approached his old partner, Frank Costello, who they made all this money during Prohibition. They promised them if he got the vote and he, his son became president, they would invade Cuba and give the mob back all their casinos. Of course, Batista was thrown out by Fidel Castro. And Maya Lansky and everybody else already owned the Nacional. I mean, I went to Cuba once to help them move money out of there as they were invading, invading it, rather. What was that experience like? Oh, that was crazy. I mean, my, my life, I used to have to stop. And like when I got on an airplane, I had my only time by myself. I used to say, is this real? Am I dreaming? What is this? <laughs> yeah, I got a suitcase for $3 million in cash. <laughs> it's insane. It's a lot of money. And that's how I got to see Sinatra again. And he's talking to me from stage. And that's when most people don't know it. He was at the Sands Hotel. The, the room was called the Copa Room. And they copied the Copa in New York because Costello owned that too. And they had the, the chorus line and all that. And I, the, the Rat Pack was performing. They were doing two shows a night, an 8 o'clock show and a 12 o'clock show. And I had one of the VIP tables that they kept for them and any mobsters or anybody, dignitaries. But I was sitting ringside, both shows. Why wouldn't I? Hello. <laughs> and they're talking to me from stage, D. Martin, saying, hey, kid. And everybody thought, you know, they're just addressing me as a kid, but that was my name. <laughs> and more people came after me after the show. I used to laugh. And they'd say, what's your name, son? I said, the kid. No, but no, but what's your real name? I said, excuse me. I just told you my name. All due respect, that's my name. Well, why do they all know you? I said, I can't tell you that. And then the maitre d' or somebody would come and get because they saw it was an, a nightly thing going on. There were people wanting to know who I was. You know, they told me I was one of their kids. I don't know what they thought, but it was it was fascinating to me because that went on for years. And they used to have a party every night. And Julie Bodell had a house on the property of the Sands Hotel. Jules Bodell was the, the uh, I mean, Jack and Trotter. Julie Bodell was in New York. Jack and Trotter was the front for them in, in Vegas. So he had a house there, and he had a swimming pool in the desert. You know, it was like 80 degrees in, at, at 2 o'clock in the morning when the show broke. Sure. And they used to have pool parties. I'm sitting as a kid because I was allowed everywhere. And just the eyes and ears. So not, I mean, Costello wanted to know everything that went on. I couldn't even tell him some of the things because I said, he ain't not going to believe me. And I, if he didn't ask, I'd never lie to him. I would never lie to him. If he didn't ask, I asked the, the question that I answered was the, the, the question he asked. But I couldn't start saying, you know, I watched John F. Kennedy snorting coke. I didn't, I, I took sugar. Off of Julia Prowse's stomach with Sammy Davis Jr. And I'm saying to myself, this guy's going to be president. What are they doing over there? <laughs> Julia Prowse was a, a headline dancer-singer. She worked for the mob. And she was a starlet. And uh, 
Dean Martin, who I love and still did right to die, the shoes that I wear, he gave me a pair when I was 16 and I never took them off. I have every color, every pair. He introduced Senator John F. Kennedy to Perkadan. Right. Because he had a bad back, Dean Martin, but he played two rounds of golf a day. And John F. Kennedy had a war injury we used to wear a back brace and he introduced him to Perkadan. Nobody in the world could say this next statement. I witnessed Jack, Senator John F. Kennedy, snort and coat for the first time in his life. Sammy Davis used to have a little straw and they used, I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know it was drugs. He did a first line of coke. He looked up. And he said, this is the senator. He said to Dean, he said, Dean, this is better than the Perkadan you're giving me. And nobody knew he was taking Perkadan. I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, what is this guy doing? He's gonna, if he becomes president, they're going to be doing coke in the White House. <laughs> Wild. And how old are you at this moment in time? You're 13. I was like 17, 17 18. 18. But, you know. And even when he got inaugurated, you know, Sinatra and him were like best of buddies and that would end soon. Sinatra was, you know, produced the inauguration. It was a, it was a big thing. And, you know, they gave Costello out of respect two tickets to go to the inauguration. What you can imagine the seats they gave him. Because yeah. obviously he became president. So he said, you go. So I had a tuxedo, you know, I'm going, I went by myself. And everybody around me was, must, was saying, like, he must be a dignitary son or something. Because, you know, <laughs> the name Gianni Russo. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the shooter. You mentioned who shot Kennedy in your book. Oh, yeah. Hello. Let's talk Well, what that. happened was the problem, unbeknownst to Robert Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, his father, orchestrated this whole thing by getting the mob, because there was no way in the world a Catholic president is going to become president in the United States. In fact, it was, you know, even as their primary was approaching, they realized even with all the Teamsters Union, the International Longshoremen's Union, named them brotherhoods, and all the mob families, he still didn't have a chance. I took a flight to Dallas. Again, with a suitcase, a guy picked me up only to find out later on who he was. And uh, it was uh, Jack Ruby, who shot Lee Harvey Oswald at the at the police station because Jack Ruby was running all the illegitimate prostitution and, and uh, gambling in Dallas. So I land in Dallas. He picks me up and we drive out to town and I go to this door with him at my side, they ring the bell. A guy comes to the door. I give him the suitcase. They take me back to the airport. Had to be 30, 40 million in that suitcase. I know suitcase and how much brand new, they used to get brand new $100 bills. So, you know, I could put a million dollars in a, in a, in a size nine shoebox, right. all new. So I bring the money and then three days later, Lyndon Bain Johnson announces his running mate and that's how they got in. Only to find out 
They promised Linda Bain Johnson he would get the next eight years. They thought they had enough strength for Kennedy now that he was going to win. He'll stay eight years because the election's every four. And then Linda Bain Johnson and they would control the White House as they did with five other presidents. That was the, the arrangement? Mo- that was the arrangement. That's the only reason. He hated the Kennedys. But Lyndon Bain Johnson felt this is my way of becoming the president of the United States. So he, he went along, went and got the money. What did he care? That's crazy. Not that he needed money. You mentioned meeting Marilyn Monroe. How does that come about? How does your friendship come together? Well, I, I was still running errands in New York. I was like 15 and a half. And I got stopped. One of my routes was Lindy's. When I tell you about my routes, what went on in New York City, the numbers, they used to bet numbers, the silks of the of the races, so nobody could fix them. So just as a pastime, it was even money. If you but give me five dollars on the set on the number two horse in the second race at Aqueduct. And you said, okay, it's a pastime. People gamble on anything. Even housewives, if you bet a nickel, you got twenty seven dollars. So the numbers business was a multi-million dollar racket that they owned. So I used to stop all these places to pick up the slips because before post time, the numbers had to be in. You couldn't put down the number after the race. Right. So that was my thing, my route. There was people all over the city, all over the world. So my route was all up here. You know, Lindy's, all over in the 50s and 60s, Midtown. So I would come out of Lindy's, which was a big diner, a restaurant, cafe, and a guy stops me in a brown suit, a brown uniform. He says, kid, why aren't you in school? And I laughed at him. You know, I already had like a slight attitude. <laughs> I said, in school? That's what am I going to be doing in school? He says, well, as a law, how old are you? I said, I'm 15 and a half. So he takes out this book and he starts writing a ticket. He says, you make sure, what, what's your address? So I gave my grandmother's address. And he put it on the tickets. You give this to your parents. I'm a truant officer. You got, they're going to get fined. You got to go to school till you're 16 in New York. So now I walk from Lindy's. I go around the corner of 52nd Street. It's Toot Shores, where I used to stop there all the time. And Costello's there by then. Joe DiMaggio. Everybody. Anybody that's anybody was there was their hangout in the afternoon, Jackie Gleason, because they, you know, they hang out there, and then they go do a show, Jackie Gleason, Hour and all this stuff. So I walk in, I had the ticket in my hand. So they were kidding me. I didn't even get it. So Costello says, how'd you get a ticket? Walking too fast? I said, I don't know. It's a ticket. So he said, give me that ticket. I looked at it. He says, this is a truant's ticket. I said, what does that mean? He says, how old are you? I said, I'm 15, 15 and a half. He said, well, you got to go to school. I said, I don't want to go to school. I, wanna, I ain't going to school. I want to keep doing this. He said, don't worry. You keep doing this. So he arranged for me to go to beautician school. Right. He said, right on top of Lindy's is Wilford Academy, a beautician school. I said, I don't want to be no hairdresser. I want to do what I'm doing. You got to go until you're six. Don't worry until you're 16. I'll handle it. So next morning, he says, before you come to meet me, Stopped there at nine o'clock. So I stopped by and sure enough, he arranged it. Oh, you must be the kid, da 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 da. She introduced herself, just show up, sign the registry just in case they're checking, and go do what you gotta go do. Now I look over her shoulder, 
and there's about 20 or 30 pretty little girls. And I'm saying to myself, where can I find 20 or 30 little girls at 9 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> so I used to hang out there for an hour or two before I had to meet him at 11. Unbeknownst to me, here comes these two guys. Kenneth, which the women in your audience will know, he was one of the best hairdressers in the world. He became Jackie O's. I mean, Jackie, o, um, Jackie Kennedy, then Jackie O's, private hairdresser. And she built him a salon called Kenneth's. At the time, he was working at Lily Dashay. And his friend, who, I mean, they were lovers, but they just called them friends. Now, whatever, they call them anything they want. But at that time, they were just friends. Right. And he was a colorist, Mark Sinclair. And the teacher let me know that they're looking for shampoo boys. And if you get hired, it would count as your hours in school. And you can make tips. And they said Lily Dashay. Now, I used to pass Lily Dashay, 56th and Park. All I saw were limousines and gorgeous women dressed to the nines walking in there. I said, and I'm hoping they pick me. Sure enough, these two guys picked me because I was a good looking guy. And I was always ready and dressed because I was going to go meet Costello. Right. So they picked me immediately. And, and I, I, they probably thought they were going to have my their way with me, but that ain't going to happen. <laughs> I would remind them about my <laughs> intended in the hospital if that happened. <laughs> it didn't get to that. Now I show up, I'm standing at attention at the staircase because Lily Dashay is a known haberdasher and also has the salon for society in New York. So then they'd call you and I go up the stairs and they give you a card. And yet my fourth head of hair, I walk into the shampoo room, not like, you know, in the other salons that are lined up the sinks. These are private rooms. The lady has a smock on, she gets undressed. You know, because there's all expensive clothes. You're not going to get them wet or stained with coloring. And they tell me exactly what to do on the card. I'm reading the card, and I look up, and it's Marilyn Monroe. Now, the reason I knew Marilyn Monroe, when Costello and all of them went home, a lot of times they had nothing to do. So that's when the Paramount Theater, now the Paramount Theater, this is the second time it's in my life. First, Sinatra. Now I'm there every night because it was open 24 hours a day. And then later on, I come to make a movie called The Godfather of Obama. These are all crazy omens. So I'm in the balcony at this age, you can imagine. And I see Marilyn Monroe in the sheer dress. And she's singing, I want to make love to you. Well, I'm masturbating up in the balcony. What do I care? It's four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and now her head... We all know the configuration of a shampoo basin. She's staring at the ceiling. Right. I don't even know how long I'm looking at her. And she said, is there someone here? I said, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. And they, they would never give you her name. You know, she's just client 12 or whatever. So I walked over and you have to t test the water and wet her inside of her elbow uh, her wrist for her to approve it. And then it said hard shampoo. So I'm shampooing with all the things they told me to shampoo with. And I'm rubbing her and shampooing her. And she's moaning. Now, we all know the configuration of a shampoo basin. I got my three-piece set on her shoulder. 
And as I'm massaging her, I'm getting an erection. Uh-oh. Did she tell? Well, I, don't know, I don't know whether she knew it or not, but she started requesting me <laughs> and leaving me tips. But the part, the funniest thing, again, a visual for your audience, I had a towel dry her hair and comb all the snarls out of it. And while I'm doing that, I'm saying the rosary to myself. How am I going to get this erection down to walk her out of here? Because I, I had this TP type bulge in my crotch to walk over to the chair. And all these guys, are, they knew what was going on. And then one day, Costello was leaving town like he did on the weekends. And he said, I have a guest staying, checking on them. This was Saturday morning. He said, don't go up before 12. Hmm. So I go knock on the door because it kept the suite. When they, when they had private meetings, they go to the suite so nobody would be earshot to the FBI or anybody. So I opened the door and some Marilyn Monroe in a robe. And she says, what are you doing here, Johnny? I said, well, Mr. C told me to look in on you. So come on in. I said, no, no, I shouldn't come in the room. She said, come in. I just ordered room service. I didn't know what room service was. You know, she had these carts of all this food. I'm saying, wow. She said, come have breakfast. I said, I had breakfast long ago. Well, have a drink. I said, I can't drink. I'm only 15, 16 years old. She started giggling. She said, you could do anything you want in this room. She gave me a glass of champagne. I couldn't believe it. So here I am sitting with Marilyn Monroe and me, and I'm saying to myself, who's going to believe that I'm sitting in Marilyn Monroe's suite? She had this big terry cloth robe on that I became, I got used to seeing her in those. And she's having a breakfast, and we're talking. He said, well, I'm going to take a bath. I said, well, I'm going to go downstairs. If you want me, I'm, just tell them. They know who I am. I'll wait. She said, no, no, no. Come into the bathroom with me. So she takes me by the hand. She's got the robe on, turns the bath water on. And while the tub is running, she says, comb out my hair like you do at the salon. I said, well, okay, that's no problem. So she lowers her robe shoulder length. It's now on bare shoulders and her cleavage is showing. And I'm combing her hair and I'm saying to myself, this has got to be dream. I can't, how could this be happening? Unbelievable. So now she gets up and walks over and shuts off the bath water. She said, take a bath with me. I said, are you going to get me killed? So who knows what's going on in this room? And with this, she drops her robe. I can't believe what I'm looking at. And in, in today's time, she was a voluptuous woman. She's not yeah. been like actresses now. But me, I'm looking at this woman. I'm saying to myself, this is crazy. And she gets into the tub. She's getting in the tub. So I'm trying to take off my clothes slow, not look like I wanted to just dive in the water. <laughs> <laughs> and I get in on the other side in the tub where the faucets and all that. And she said, no, come here, come over. And she grabs my hand and pulls me close to her. Well, this was Saturday afternoon. I left Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Costello found out? Do you think he knew? No, he, oh, God forbid. The next morning, I mean, Monday, I go down there, right? He said, you look tired. you get any sleep this weekend? <laughs> I, said, I said, not much. I didn't say nothing else. And I got off the subject right away. I said, what do you want me to do today? And that was it. There was never more I, said. I, I wouldn't lie to him. I would have to tell him. Of course. I never lied to that man. 
since Scarface, so much action. Not since the Marx Brothers, so much comedy. Not since the seven-year itch, so much Maryland. The best picture this year will also be the funniest. Good night, sugar. Good night, honey. There's one thing sure, boy never met girl like this before. You've never laughed more at sex, or a picture about it. You stay here as long as you like. Jack may have beaten Tony to the sugar, but not for long. You're not giving yourself a chance. Don't fight it. Marilyn sing the fabulous songs of the Roaring Twenties on the United Artists soundtrack album. Running wild, lost control, running wild, mighty bold, feeling gay, reckless too, carefree mind all the time, never blue, always going, don't know where, always showing, I don't care, don't love nobody. It's not worthwhile All alone Running wild That was crazy. Crazy. I read you were friends with Grace Kelly. What was she like? Well, that, that was another event that came by accident. At the, at the Cope, I, he used to go home for every night for dinner, Costello, and then come back. I'd meet him at 8 o'clock just in case he wanted me to do any running around or whatever. And occasionally, like when he had Earl Wilson or some celebrities with him, he'd give me an envelope. And at the Barbizon Hotel, which is on 62nd Street and Lexington Avenue, which is, again, right in this little area where I live, he says, go to the third floor and give this to the floor monitor because it was a woman's private hotel. Only women could stay there. And a lot of society people and people of money used to put their daughters there knowing that we had to be in by nine. And a lot of them went to Barbizon for finishing and all that. And Grace Kelly was in living in Philly and living there. And Costello would say with the envelope, go get some flowers for the table. Meaning, go get the girls. <laughs> and he'd give me money to take a cab back and all that. But I used to walk over because it was not that far. And then I'd get these big checkered cabs with two or three girls. And I'd sit on the jump seat. And I got to meet Grace Kelly very naively. And Audrey Hepburn the same way. And a lot of other big starlets and society women. And then ironically, you know, that became a habit because they all wanted to be known and noticed they were studying acting and all that. 
And then I was rekindled with her in the strangest way. Because I was on the independence November 22nd, going under the Verrazano Bridge when they announced the president was shot, not killed, shot. Right. And when I got to the ship, Costello arranged for me to get on the ship. He said, I want you to get out of the country. That's whatever you want. He said, but I signed you on as a hairdresser. As a hairdresser, I said, yeah. He said, yeah, you're a merchant marine now. This way you don't have to use your passport and nobody's going to know where you are. So again, I would never question him. So I get there that morning and I'm going to, you know, the crew. They had to report it early. So I'm there with my Brioni suits and my Gucci luggage. And they're saying to me, sir, no, sir, you have to go where the passengers are. This is the crew. I said, no, I'm part of the crew. And they're saying, who the frig is this guy? (laughs) I said, I'm supposed to ask for Mr. Pennington. They said, Mr. Pennington, he's the captain of the ship. I said, yeah, he knows I'm coming. So with that, they you know, usher me into the crew. And sure enough, they bring me up to the, the you know, the, the, the chambers right near the, uh, the, the, where they steer the ship. And he comes out and he tells the guy to bring me to this suite on U deck. They're carrying my luggage, they're tripping all over me because they don't know who I am. And I and he said to me, Somebody's going to meet you in Barcelona. I said, okay, no problem. Whatever he does, I tell him, I did. So I go out on the terrace. I can't believe I'm on this U-deck of a ship, the Independence, looking at the skyscrapers of Staten Island, I'm Staten Island, that's of the island of New York, Brooklyn, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's a suite I'm in. I never saw a room like this on a boat. I've never been on a boat before, a ship, rather. But there was two little kids playing on the balcony next to me. I said, are these kids? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, can, can I have another room? I don't want to be near these kids. They said, well, the person who was the mother of those kids requested knowing you were coming to the boat. That's why I didn't pay any attention. So now I'm out on the deck and we're going under the bridge. And they announced the president was shot. and The whole mood on the ship changed and pilot boats are coming taking all these dignitary men off because he didn't say he was dead they said he was shot and i guess they was you know the stock market crashed everything you know and the president right and i'm me my walked away i'm saying wow look at there's only gonna be women left on this boat i'll be on this boat for five days with all these women <laughs> not realizing the guy dies and on the deck is Grace Kelly. So that's who Grace Kelly was. She's the mother of these kids Albert, we're talking about. Albert's mother, the two kids running around. Wow. What are the chances of that? That's what I'm saying. I mean, it's so crazy. And she thought they had me on there to watch her. <laughs> and after our one night was so funny because, you know, you're now, it's very doom and gloom because the next day they announce he's dead and the world's in in depression. And she leaves a bottle of Dom Perignon on my railing. Okay. With a note, with two glasses. So I go and knock on her cabin door 
and she's very quiet. And she's, and you know, she had a nurse, obviously. And she comes into my suite. And we're sitting out on the deck in the middle of the ocean drinking Dom Perignon. <laughs> and, you know, again, I don't drink. And I order another bottle. And anything I wanted, I could have on that ship, obviously. I knew the captain. And uh, we got involved, her and I. And that's the first time I'm talking about her. Because I didn't talk about her in my book. But my next book I'm writing about her. Because I, I had conversations with Albert and Carolyn. And, you know, Stephanie is a different person altogether. But in a, in a nice way. You know, we were very depressed and got drunk and it happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story on this podcast for the first time. It's really appreciated. Going back to Costello, when you reflect and you think about working with Costello for the, for the you know, three decades you're working with him, can you speak to, you know, this rite of passage that working for Costello gives you as a young adult growing up? Oh, my God. Anything you want. <laughs> I remember going to, uh, there's a funny, I, I went to Vegas for the first time and they introduced me to a guy called Perry Thomas, who was the president of the Valley Bank. And uh, I was making a lot of money and I wanted to have an account. So he, they told me to go to Las Vegas Country Club. I said, you know, I'm just a kid. I go to Las Vegas Country Club and there is Perry Thomas. A guy I, I, I got to know later on, Hank Greenspun. Hank Greenspun owned the Sun newspaper and owns Greenspun magazine yet to this to this world. And his and his son Brian, all his little kids at that time. And he was one of the biggest arms dealers for Israel. He was spending all his money there. But why I'm mentioning these names, these are the who's who of the Jewish syndicate. <laughs> and Mr. Thomas said to me, I opened up a, a passbook for you. We have an account for you. And, you know, we've all been to banks. You got to sign this paper, that paper, this paper. He gives me the bank account. He said, we gave you a credit line of a million dollars just in case you need any money. <laughs> Not too much money. <laughs> but, I mean, that's only one, you know, thing. And when you get the perks right. when you're working for Frank Costello. Of course, that's, um, that's insane. Let's talk about The Godfather, which prior to working on, most people, as you said earlier, they don't know your name, but of course they know you as the kid and everything changes after The Godfather, doesn't it? How did you land the part for Carlo Rizzi? Well, I, I was on the West Coast a lot. And that book came out, the, uh, the, you know, the Godfather. Yeah. So I had a girl read to me because I still am very slow in reading. I went, never went to school. I went to first grade and that was it. So with that said, the girl reads me the book and as she's reading it, I'm saying, I could play Michael. I could play Carlo. I could play Sonny, even Fredo. That's where my mind was going. And now, you know, I'm 25 years of age. I got untold amount of money. I own a club that Frank let me build in the Tropicana Hotel, which he owned in Vegas, called Tiffany's, because I was getting bored. He's opened a club, opened a nightclub for me. So I opened the nightclub for him. And he happened to have Elvis Presley come for the week. 
in my club while he was performing at the International. Wow. And they owned and controlled all the cab companies. So everybody got in the cab, wanted to go someplace else. The dispatcher would say, well, Elvis is at Tiffany's right now at the Tropicana if you'd like to see him. So then, unbeknownst, there we go again, another perk. But I mean, so, I mean, it was those kind of things that never stopped. But I, everybody used to say, you know, you're a good looking guy. You should become an actor, become an actor. And I, and I heard the trials and tribulations. So I'm now reading the newspaper where Joe Colombo, who I knew from New York, being a family member, there was five families in New York. One of them was the Colombo family. And he's picketing the FBI building and Carlo Gambino and everybody else is getting really bent out of shape. And I knew they called him in and told him to stop doing this. You know, you're part of an organization that's a secret organization. <laughs> and he's, yeah, they're boycotting the book. They don't want the book made. It's this, that, and the other. And I had no how they think because I've been around them enough. It's about money. So I asked Costello, I said, Can, I want to come in. I want to talk to uh, Costello. I mean, to uh, Colombo. Right. He said, all right, I'll arrange it. So I come in. And I meet Joe. I said, Joe, I know you're having problems with the, the with the families about doing what you're doing, but and I and I made believe, and I understand that they're, they're taking advantage of your son because they arrested his son and all this. So he's trying to use that. And I said, but we can make a lot of money. And I notice I said we. I said we can make a lot of money with this. He said, how are we going to make any money with him? I said, well, you just hired this guy, Barry Schlotnick, a young attorney who represents you. I said, we know people that know him. And why don't we go have a meeting with Paramount at the Gulf and Western building? Is you could arrange that? I said, with your permission, I'll go arrange it. So he goes to Barry, he says, Barry, what do you think? He said, yeah, let's, let's talk to him. I said, the reason why what you don't like in the script, have Barry read the script. And if they make the changes, you'd be a hero to all the Italian people. Because the book is already in second print. Mm. The things that are bothering you, let's take it out. So he looks at Barry, he says, let's try it. So I go to arrange the meeting, long story short. You know, they all agree. And I said, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What about me? So he says, yeah, what are you going to do for my boy? He wants to be in the movie. So I'll write, he said, oh, we'll give him a part. I said, excuse me, you're not giving me any part. I want to play Michael, Sonny, or Carlo. I, may, I did this deal here. So I said, who's playing Michael? This is going to shock you. They cast Michael as Jimmy Kahn. Mm. As Sonny was Carmine Caridi, who had a big play on Broadway, but a big guy, typical Hollywood, they casted a big muscular guy because Sonny was supposed to be this guy. Right. I said, well, who's playing Carlo? They said, we didn't get to that part yet. So I said to Costello, I said, I want to play Carlo. So he tells them, he's playing Carlo. They all look at each other. It's okay. <laughs> That's how I got in the film business. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. What was it about the book that bothered him? You mentioned censoring from the book, of course. What well, was... he didn't like it. Well, he was just plain grandstanding, calling people wops and guineas, and ah. they were all 
killers, you know, moralizing the mob about the Italians are all killers. And basically, that wasn't the book. The book was about family and family values and respect. Yes, there were killings. So they softened it a lot. But look at the picture it is now. Nobody even looks at The Godfather. Yes, it's a mob movie, but it's about family and respect. Yeah. And that's the thread. Exactly. So, you know, that's how I became an actor. <laughs> well, speaking of the thread, you know, prior to The Godfather, of course, you've not acted in anything. You've got no experience. Where does your love of cinema come from? Is there a film specifically that kicks off your love for cinema and wanting to be an actor? Oh, just my ego. <laughs> my ego. I just wanted, I figured if I become an actor, me, forget how many girls I did have. I'm already making money. That ain't going away. You know, I wanted to emanate Sinatra, basically. Once he did Here to Eternity, look what happened to him. Forget about it. No, that's why I did it. And that was my downfall almost. Because when we got to the rehearsals up at Patsy's 119 Avenue, yeah. I was there all the time. Fat Tony Salerno. He ran the Genovese family at that time. Well, I knew them well. And when I saw that that's where the rehearsal was, I was happy because I knew everybody. In fact, I got up there early. I'm in a Brioni suit. I got a 65 Bentley with a Chinese chick driver. And all these stars are coming up in Ford station wagons. My car staying right on the front. And I'm at the bar with Fat Tony Salerno, Danny Pagano. These are real guys. And they were all there because they wanted, they heard they have in the back room the rehearsal of The Godfather. Hmm. So I get there and they say, what are you doing here so early? I said, I'm here for the rehearsal. He says, what rehearsal? Rehearsal for The Godfather? I said, yeah. He said, what are you going to do in the movie? I said, I got a partner. Let's get out of here. Because they knew I was with Costello, you know. And they said, does, does Frank know you're doing this movie? I said, Frank was indirectly helping me. He said, what part are you playing? I said, I'm playing Carlo. Carlo, the rat, the stool pigeon. I said, yeah, they said, yeah, I'm not playing that part. So now they say to us before Brando appears, no eye contact with Marlon Brando. When there's a break, do not approach him. Just avoid him completely. And so now they bring him in like, you know, the Don that he's supposed to be. He sits at the head of the table and we're sitting around the table in order as cast. So I'm sitting with the family as the son-in-law. And then you got to, you know, Barzini, all the major parts were there to rehearse. And we did that, as Francis said, for the next five days, we're going to rehearse. And the Italians, we want you to exaggerate your hand gestures and your mannerisms because Brando being Polish, he has to become Italian. Right. Jimmy Conn being Jewish, they all had to become and motivated and look like an Italian. And with this, he had food on the table, and we drank wine, and everybody had five days to become Italian who weren't Italian. So the first break, Brando comes over to me. Now, I said, I'm not doing nothing wrong. The guy came over to me. And he says to me, you're a big TV actor. I said, no. He's got a big movie coming out. I said, no. He says, well, you're not on Broadway. I know everybody on Broadway. I said, you're right again. Was this a quiz show? Because he, I guess he thought I'd be intimidated by him. But if I ain't intimidated by Costello, I ain't going to be intimidated by you. Right. So with this, he calls Coppola over. He says, Francis, this guy's playing my son-in-law. And Francis rolls his eyes because he didn't want me in it either. <laughs> but he had no choice. 
he said, and he breaks down the whole script, which I didn't even read the script. I want, like, I want, I got in this to, you know, be a movie star. If it's, if it works, it works. If don't, it don't. Who cares? Right. And he says, he marries my daughter. He undermines my family. He gets my son, Sonny, killed. He gets Michael drawn into the business, which I did not want. This guy's got to be a great, believable actor. You better think this. And I'm saying to myself, I just heard the conversation at the bar. This guy gets me fired. They're going to think I'm a liar. And that's the one thing I don't want to be in this group that I'm really in, that I'm a liar. Yeah. So I didn't know protocol. So I said, Francis, go over there. The whole room went quiet. They said, this guy just dismissed the director in front of Marlon Brando, <laughs> and he left. <laughs> wow. So it wasn't always easy to work with him in the beginning. Did it get easier working with him? No, this is what happens. So now you're not supposed to look at him or approach him. I put my arm around him. Okay. I said, come here, Mr. Brando. I want to come, let's come back here. That's where the Ziganette games. I knew there'd be nobody during the day. I don't want to embarrass the guy. So I walk back there and I come nose to nose with him so I could just whisper. I'm looking dead in his eye. I said, let me tell you something. All due respect, I know who you are, but you screwed us up. I'm cleaning this up for the radio. You screwed us up for me. Listen to me. I will suck on your heart. You will bleed out right here. If you get me fired, you're dead. He stepped back. He said, that was brilliant. He thought I was acting. I meant it. <laughs> that's incredible. What a story. And that's how he became my acting teacher. Marlon Brothers, my acting teacher. Oh. When Dick Smith, his personal makeup man, turned him into Carlo, I mean, into um, Don Corleone, took three hours. And he'd call me in and run lines with me. And what are you going to do with this? And when Michael hands you the airline ticket, what are you going to do? You got to look down. You got to, yeah. that's your security blanket. You think you're going to leave. You already know you died. You read the script, but you're going to be on an 18 foot screen. The audience got to believe you think you can get out of there. And that was all him, man. So you're learning this language. You're learning this language, which is prior to this point. Like you say, unfamiliar. You're not familiar with acting. What do you think you learned about yourself acting in The Godfather? That I can call on things. Because he said to me, when Michael approached you, you know these guys are killers. Have, have you ever had anything bother you or fear or something? And I immediately, immediately the fear of me in the bathroom in this guy. Because I cry. And, 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 and lay people who are listening to us, when you shoot the master, everybody's in the scene. Then they come in and do close-ups, two shots, Michael and me, over his shoulder, over my shoulder. So all you have to build that emotion. And he was the one. He said, I want you to cry right now for me. And I thought of my time in Bellevue. And I cried. And I cried, and he believed it. He said, that's amazing. How'd you do that? I said, well, you told me to relate. And I did. Telling you and all your audience that listen, I never did anything in my life in that. And now to do this, and I'm sitting with Pacino, and you know all the other scenes were violent, you know, very physical. But to go head to head, and when he hands me the drink, it was it was 
Brando told Pacino, guide his hand because he's shaking. He, he directed that whole scene. And it worked. And then all he wanted me to say, it was Barzini. He wanted me to tell him, now just tell me, Carlo, I'm not going to make my sister a widower. Who approached you? Was it Tatalia or Barzini? And even before I said it, he said, just don't say it. Look around the room, look in all the eyes of these killers. And that's when I whispered it, like only for him to hear it. He said, don't say it loud. Mm-hmm. Say it under his breath so maybe they won't hear it. And that was all Brando. But that, that scene still stands up 50 years from now. Do you think he gets enough credit for that scene in directing it? I, I don't. I mean, Francis deserved every credit he gets. Of course. Oh, no, he got nothing for that, no. No, after that, he wouldn't even talk to them. Because, you know, they, they topped him out. They gave him 250000 because they thought he was a has-been. They did not want him. Coppola wanted him, and Coppola wanted Pacino. And he didn't want me, but so they made a trade-out. We'll give you those two, but that guy's got to stay. Mm. <laughs> and at the time, Pacino and Diane Keaton were newcomers, weren't they? What are, what are your what? memories of working with Pacino and Keaton? Well, I didn't have any memory. I mean, he was a nice guy. That's all I knew. I mean, basically, I had no, no memories of any of them in a professional way. Because I would, I, you know, I used to go see Some Like It Hot 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't watching Brian Piccolo on television that made Jimmy Conn a star. No, no I, I didn't, you know, to me, it didn't mean nothing. I wasn't watching movies or going to the movies or, or watching TV, that's for sure. What were the issues between you and James Kahn on set? Oh, he was so, I, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this guy was like a thespian, an egomaniac. He just did Brian Piccolo, probably one of the biggest 90-minute movies on TV. And he was full of himself and a true thespian. And what he wanted to be was a mobster. He thinks he's Sonny Corleone in real life. So we had to teach him a lesson one night. What happened? Well, he, he, he played a game with me, which you know, I was trying to stay out of his way. And I'm at, I'm at Jilly's on 52nd Street, which was the hangout for Sinatra and everybody. And I'm with two guys, world famous guys in the mob. One, Tommy Bellotti. You may have heard that name. Tommy Bellotti got shot down in front of Sparks with Paul Castellano. And the other guy was Boozy DeChico. Mm. And his son, Frankie Boy DeChico, was blown up by a gas pipe thinking it was Gotti in the car and it was Frankie boy. Why I bring those names up because we were at the bar having drinks and Jimmy Conn comes from the back room where the piano bar was. And he said, Junior's in the back. Now the junior, he was referring to his junior Persico who took over the Colombo family when he got assassinated. He got assassinated while we're having this conversation in 71 June 28th at the Columbus rally. They killed him before the movie came out. Well, they shut that off. Sorry. That's wild. The theme of the Godfather play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. And Junior Persico is now the boss. Right. So I knew Junior for a long time. He says, you come back to his daughter's day. He wants you to meet her, which I would 
think he'd want to, you know, I'm going to star in the movie now. Hello. So I go back there. We hug junior. I kiss because Jimmy don't know how well I know this guy. And, and leaving, I say to him, your daughter is gorgeous. Thank you for inviting me back to meet him. Soon as I say his daughter, his face twisted. Now, Carmine Jr. Persico, his nickname was the snake. I couldn't even tell you how many people this guy killed. He died doing life in jail. You don't play with this guy. Jimmy set me up. So now I go to the bathroom downstairs and here comes two juniors guys. Thank God Tommy Bellotti caught the move. He follows them downstairs. So one guy was just about to go to work on me. Tommy comes in the bathroom. He says, what are you going to do? He said, this guy just in, in, insulted Junior. Junior's with his girl, and he called him his daughter. And, and Tommy, without thinking, look this guy up, Tommy Bellotti. He walked right up to this guy and cracked him right open, knocked him right out. The other guy that was standing near the sink, Tommy grabbed him by the back of the head and cracked his head open. These two guys are laying on the floor now. Now, the only guy that could approach Junior is Boozy DeChico, because he's a made guy. You can't go, we can't go talk to him. So Boozy's there, he said, I heard this whole thing. So we go in there, and Junior was shocked to see Boozy was with me. He says, Junior, come on, let's go in the kitchen, we gotta talk. They're in there a couple of minutes only. They call for Jimmy. Jimmy gets back there, you hear, pa, pa. Junior cracked him. Now they call me back in. And they said, Johnny, Junior says to me, I'm sorry. I heard what went on. This rat, he set you up. So Tommy Bloody wanted to kill Jimmy right there. I said, Tommy, you can't. We're only four weeks into the movie. We'll never make the movie. Let's make the movie. Then we'll kill him. And we were serious. And Junior says to Jimmy Kahn right then and there. Did you want to know about this life? This life you portray in the movie? You're going to learn a lesson. He owns you right now. Not meaning me. I can't. Boozy DeChico and Tommy Bellotti. Crazy. And Jimmy couldn't know what to say. And we left. And that was it. Jimmy hated me because now he's, to this day, if I want Jimmy, again, right now. I'd let him go. He's he's got a terrible life. He's he's got a terrible attitude. And uh, where is his career now? He's broke. He's in a wheelchair. I I pray for him rather than hurt him. Can you remember the last time you guys spoke? Uh, probably at the, that at day the, on the set. Right. Oh no, we did a, a stupid movie, and I did it as a favor. And I had one scene with Jimmy, but it was all professional. Hello, goodbye. Well, I wasn't going to screw up my career because I am. So they wanted me in a movie. I went. <laughs> <laughs> I was always curious as to if it frustrated you that the mafia couldn't appreciate the Godfather as much as people like Escobar and Saddam Hussein and even Donald Trump did. Did that bother you? Not at all, because, you know, behind closed doors as they, as they got older, even Carlo Gambino was very annoyed that I did it. Sinatra hated the fact that I did it. Really? You know, well, Johnny Fontaine was portrayed by supposed to be him. Right. And what bothered him most, and your, your audience is going to hear something that nobody knows, what bothered him the most, it seemed like he went to the Don 
to get here to eternity. And no mob guy did that for him. Ava Gardner gave herself to Cohen because she destroyed Sinatra. Sinatra tried to kill himself over her. They found him with his head in his oven at his agent's apartment. Nobody knows that. He was dead. That's why he lost his voice for two years. He damaged his vocal cords. And she got him that part, and he won an Oscar, and that revised his career. And as a memory to her, he didn't want anybody to think that the mob got him that movie. She got him that movie. And he called me up. And Dorothy was on the phone. She said, the old man wants to talk to you. I knew it was him. So I got on the phone. He says to me, we're friends, right? I said, of course, Frank, whatever. He said, if I asked you to do me a favor, would you do it? I said, whatever you want me to do. What do you want me? He said, well, you know, Victor Moan was asked to do the movie The Godfather as a part of Frank DeBantin. I said, yeah? He said, he turned it down. He said, you're playing Carlo. I said, yeah. He said, I don't want you to do it. I said, what? He said, I don't want you to do it. And he called me off guard. I said, okay, Frank, whatever you want. I hung out. Then I'm saying to myself, are you nuts? So I waited a day. And I called him on the phone. I said, Dorothy, give me Frank. Get him on the phone. Frank. Oh, Johnny, how are you? All that. I said, let me ask you one question. Whatever you want. I said, if I asked you to do me a favor, would you do it? Anything you want. Is if I asked you not to do Head to Eternity, would you have done it? And he hung up on me. <laughs> so we're talking about something that was very much personal for Frank at that time. I know, and that's this is and that's he didn't talk to me for months. Wow! And then we then we rekindled. You know, he he was in a situation in Chicago, and he saw who I was with there, and he came away, hey, Johnny, and he hugged me, and I whispered, "Is <laughs> you now your friend? Because you see who I'm with." <laughs> From a legacy of vengeance, a tradition of crime was born, and with it, the first generation of a powerful family that would span two continents. In six decades. Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, and Diane Keaton star in part one of The Godfather, the complete novel for television. Tuesday night at 7 on KPTV 12. Oh, I mean, my relation, man, I, I love, you know, Pacino. Pacino and I did uh, Any Given Sunday. We've done some stuff. De Niro and I worked on a couple of projects that never came to be. No, Bobby's a good friend of mine. In fact, Bobby, if you have my book, he gave me a, a forward on the cover. That's right. Nick Pelleggi uh, endorsed it, who, who did Goodfellows. Gay Talese, probably one of the most decorated journalists in the world. No, it's that's all water under the bridge now. Yeah. It's... Did you in any way feel pigeonholed after doing The Godfather? And how did you turn that around? I didn't have to turn anything around. To me, everybody says that. You feel you were typecasted. When I, I, in the next film I did, I should have been typecast. I did a, a film with Tony Curtis called Lepke, L-E-P-K-E. -E. Yeah. I played Albert Anastasia. <laughs> no, but then, you know, then I did The Four Deuces right after that with Jack Palance. And that was about the Fischetti brothers. And I did some classics like Family Man with Nicolas Cage. And, and I, I played the owner with Cameron Diaz in Any Given Sunday. 
chances are I did a comedy with, you know, no, my, my, I did 46 motion pictures. People don't know that. Yeah. And I was involved in 16 and I'm in the production end of it. There's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, you also work with Peter Hyams for a couple of pictures. Oh my God, I love that movie. What was it like working with Hyams? Oh, he's the best. No, that's why I'm saying. I mean, to me, you know, and you know, you know that, and I, I don't want to sound brash or braggart. I already had millions of dollars in the bank. To me, it's like a golf game, because a lot of my kids wanted to become actors. I said, I condone you becoming an actor. You got to do one thing first. So what's that, Dad? I said, know that you don't need a dime from it. Is what are you talking about? I became an actor. You're throwing that in my face. But I had millions of dollars in the bank. I had businesses. Get to that and make it your golf game. Acting today, you can't just get in it. You'll get in it for a year and you'll be gone. Yeah, it's not it's not easy to occupy the space that you have in so many films over these years you're talking about. You mentioned Any Given Sunday. What can you tell me about being on set for Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday, which oh. is, is notorious for having one of the most chaotic productions at that time? But I'm going to tell you why. Again, I walk into Dan Tanner's restaurant, going to have dinner. I used to eat a lot. I have a house in Beverly Hills at the time. And I walk in his Pacino with Oliver Stone, sitting right next to the booth that I'm going to be sitting in. So before I sit down with my guest, Pacino said, come here, man, I want to talk to you. I sit down, everybody's like, well, you know, everybody wants to talk to Pacino, and then he's calling me over. So he says, what? He says, you got a lot to do with football. I said, no, 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 that's my brother-in-law. He says, I know. And Denver Broncos, Pat Bowen, was my brother-in-law. See, my all this stuff. Just didn't get me there. <laughs> it's always a reason. So I see my brother-in-law, and they just won Super Bowl, the Broncos. Okay. That year. He said, well, I want to do this movie. And we're thinking of, you know, the 49ers. We know the uh, De Bartolo. I said, well, you know, whatever you want, you know, from the Broncos, I'll call them. So I called Pat with him, Oliver Stone, Pacino, and I. This you never read anywhere either. I get him on the phone. It was late for him because I know him. So he said, what the hell are you calling me over so late? I said, I'm sitting with a guy. He said, call me tomorrow. I said, excuse me. The guy ain't going to be here. I said, what do I care? I said, Al Pacino wants to talk to you. He's what? I said, Al Pacino? He said, are you pulling my leg? I said, No. And I, I held the phone, and I introduced him, saying, Al Pacino, Pat Boland, owner of the Denver Broncos. And they talked. They kept talking. They kept talking. <laughs> Next, they're arguing about whose plane is going to take us all to Denver. Yeah, Johnny's going to come. I'm bringing Oliver Stone. And he says, no, we got Warner's plane. We'll be, we'll be there tomorrow. And Pat's convinced him. I can't hear what he's saying. But he said, no, I'll send my plane for you. <laughs> That's how that happened. Amazing. So any given Sunday, you know, it turns Jamie Foxx into a star and really revolutionizes the way football could be filmed at that time and delves and into these. So Pat Bolin, who got us into the NFL, and Oliver Stone is crazy in hell. I said, you know, the NFL has to read the script. Unless you're not going to get the cooperation. Oh, no, no, no. 
I'm writing a script for them to read that they're going to like. I said, what are you doing? He said, that's my brother-in-law. He's the head. He was on the advertising committee. I said, you can't do that to these guys. I said, we got to show them the script. And Pacino looked at it. I said, Pacino, I can't do this. And I'll, I'll let them know right away what you're doing. That's why the NFL didn't sanction the movie. Right. That's why you don't see any NFL teams. The Sharks. Hello. The only, uh, you're getting a lot of tidbits nobody ever heard. The only guy that went against him, another owner that went against him, was Jerry Jones. We scheduled after the season, we went to Dallas, and Jerry lent us this whole, his whole stadium and everything else. And, I mean, what we got away with is insane. But we had 38 movie stars. And you talk about Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx was my neighbor. He lived in Tarzana, and he was on television, Jamie Foxx show. Right. When we seen the dailies, I said, James, you got to get a publicist now. You got to get nominated. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, but thank God he, he didn't do that. He should have spent the money. But he got the Oscar for Ray. The guy's brilliant. I love Jamie Foxx. Incredible, Fox. incredible. Hello, cool, Jay. Yep. Hello, cool, Jay. How about Charleston Heston? We got, I got Moses. I used to tell him, I got Moses to play uh, Aglapu, the head of the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> what was that experience and Ann like? Cooper, who I love and a good close friend of mine for years. And when I called her, her husband picked up the phone. He said, Johnny. And he, I could see he walked where it was quiet. He, she, you know, she's an alcoholic. I said, let her read it. The lady's an alcoholic. Let her stay drunk. I want her. She plays Ann Margaret's mother. Next time you w watch that movie, she's drunk all the time. In character, they thought. <laughs> no, she was drunk. but it's a goddamn glorious one. It's about the money. Football is a corporation. He may sell a lot of t-shirts, this kid, but he's tearing his team apart. Well, then you hold it together. When tradition... This guy started coaching back in the late 60s. ...is threatened by youth. Your time is over. Unless you start playing this game the way it's played today. There's no concentration. There's no focus. A battle is fought. Money is the only thing I respect. For the soul of a game. Today, I'm ashamed to be your coach. Why the hell do you think my father put me in charge, a bullheaded moron? You got old. This is the noise that keeps me... Al Pacino, Cameron Diaz, Dennis Quaid, James Woods, Jamie Foxx, 
and LL Cool J. No intensity, no victory. Where the hell is your intensity, Tony? Any given Sunday. Why is it that you think this film, so many years later down the line, is as important and more relevant than it's ever been today? Well, look at the stars and the sports. You know, sports, I mean, you know. It, oh, you mean The Godfather or Any Given Sunday? Any Given Sunday. Any Given Sunday. Look at the characters. I mean, you look at everybody that was in that movie. Cameron Diaz. I mean, we, I mean. Moldine, James Woods. I mean, we have major actors in here. And then all the football stars. Yeah. You know, Jimmy Brown, they played a coach. I mean, a, a YA Tittles. We, can't, we brought everybody in. It was brilliant. Oliver went 23 million over budget. It was nuts. <laughs> but Warner Brothers said, just keep going, man. They knew they had a hit. You've been blessed to have had the opportunity to work with Brett Ratner for two films, Red Dragon and Rush Hour 2. Brett Ratner used to sit on my knee at Caesar's Palace when he was five or six years old. I dated his mother, Marsha. No she way. She didn't all of this. <laughs> Brett used to call me to do every movie he had. I said, Brett, I don't want to do any more movies. Give me all these little parts. But, you know. What do you remember no, most about those experiences? I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm a great actor. I got great friendships. Yeah. I get calls all the time. But it's fun. It's been fun. Yeah. It's a great movie, man. I mean, we're, we're talking about a time for you which has been as evolutionary as it's been educational for you. Is there a single film that you credit for being the smoothest production you've been involved with? Well, I mean, I, I have to give my hat off to, to Brett Ratner. I think Family Man with Nicolas Cage and T. Leone, I think it's one of the Christmas classics. He created a Christmas classic. Underrated. Right? And it's been shown every year, though, all around the world. I get residual checks, believe me. I know where they're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like working with Nick Cage? You know, it's so funny. Brett wanted to introduce Nick Cage to me on the set. So I didn't say nothing to Brett. And Nick didn't say anything to Brett. So Brett comes, bangs on my trail and goes, come on, let's go see Nick. I want you to meet Nick. So I go there and he says, Nick, Johnny Russo. And we both look at each other and we laugh and we hug each other. So Brett says, Nick, you know him? He said, I was the ring bearer in his wedding for my cousin, Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> of course. Crazy. Crazy. It's crazy. My life, you can't write this. And the things that happened for me all are tied for another reason or another relationship. If you're still listening and want to hear more of our conversation with Gianni Russo, included his account of what happened when he was kidnapped by Pablo Escobar after killing his associate, head over to patreon.com slash flyfidelity for an offer you can't refuse. Available January the 31st. And now the end is near so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear 
I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived A life that's full I traveled each And every highway And more Much more than this I did it I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh oh, you're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people, are you with me where you at?